He runs to the city of Gath, which is the city that Goliath is from. It's this detail that I love because he runs to the city that Goliath is from. Last we've heard, David's sword is Goliath's sword, so it would be pretty infamous in this town. And he goes and he says, I'll serve you, king of the Philistines. And the, but he says, I don't want to be in the capital city. I don't, can you give me one of your other towns? And so the king gives him another town, another Philistine town for him to live in with his 600 people in his band so that he's not like right underneath the king's gaze. And then there's this crazy detail I love. The king says, he says, now you can be my bodyguard. And what he literally says is, you will be the keeper of my head. So yes, you've cut off Goliath's head, my soldier. And yes, you're holding Goliath's sword, but maybe instead of attacking me, you're going to keep my head. You're going you're gonna to preserve my head. So David, David in chapter 27 is desperate, but he goes over to the enemy's of the Israelites, but it it says that he tricks the king of the Philistines by going and raiding other other cities, other people, wiping out the whole city so that the king of the Philistines doesn't find out what he's actually doing. And then he says, oh, I'm actually raiding the people of Israel. So he's, he's desperate. He's lying. The Bible doesn't really judge what he's saying. He's lying to the king of the Philistines saying, oh, I'm making myself an enemy of Saul even more while at the same time protecting the people of Israel. And so here we have David, desperate. Chapter 27 says that he's there for a year and four months. And so then picking up in chapter 28, so David is desperate and he's run away, but then chapter 28, verse 3 says, Now Samuel was dead. That's the prophet. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came to set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When he, Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. By dreams or by Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. So David is desperate and runs to the Philistines. And here the Philistines line up against Saul and Saul gets desperate because he doesn't know what to do. Saul doesn't know what to do. He gets desperate. He begins to using dreams. He begins using the, the, the priest's uh, robes. He begins searching for a prophet and he can't find out what to do. And so in desperation, Saul says, find me a medium. Find me a witch. I need somebody to tell me what to do. Find me something. So Saul goes behind enemy lines. The Philistines are here. Saul and his people are here. And Saul says, well, let's go find a witch, a medium behind their lines. And so he runs, sneaks off with his guys to a medium. It says Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one that I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. So Saul is desperate. He wants to know what to do, and so he says, bring up Samuel, the medium, Brings up, it says, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. 
You're the king. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And she said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Samuel said to Saul. I am in great distress, Samuel. Saul said, the Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Notice that this is an incredible statement for Saul to make because Saul is being judged because he will never listen to what God tells him to do. Like that's the mark of his life. He's rejected as king because he, God tells him to do something and he goes and does something else. And so in this moment, he says, God, well, I need to know what to do, so why don't you bring up the man of God for me? And so he says, Samuel, I need to know what to do. I've called on you to tell me what to do. Now, depending on how you view miracles or, and demonic and occultic things, this passage can be really troubling. Like, what, what, was this a hallucination? Was this a, his real ghost? Was this a spirit? The Bible doesn't really dwell on that. The Bible just makes clear that this is something that the Lord is doing. So I, I don't know exactly whether she's having a hallucination or if someone's actual ghost can come up. But what Saul is doing in this moment is definitely wrong. Deuteronomy makes it very clear. Someone should never seek the dead among a spiritist, a medium, or a witch. But this, so Saul says, I, I've called on you to tell me what to do. And Samuel says, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you? and become your enemy. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his spirit's wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And here's, here's the killer sentence. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. The Bible says, so Saul says, tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. There's no offer of change here, Saul. This is something that the Lord is doing. So Saul is filled with fear, falls down with fear, doesn't know what to do. Finally, the medium convinces him to rise and to eat something that she makes for him. He eats it and goes back to his people. And then the story finishes in chapter 29 with David tries to go into the same battle. Again, it's a detail that's like, why, like, why is this included? David is serving the king of Gath. The king of Gath is going out to war against Saul. And it doesn't, the chapter 29 is not super clear about what David's plans are. Maybe he's going to go into the battle and he's going to then switch over to Saul's side and help him out. Or maybe he's going to try and get his revenge on Saul. But in any case, the other kings of the Philistines say, no, we can't have David in this battle. David's too good of a warrior, and he could switch over to Saul's side and fight against us. So the king of Gath sends David back to his city, which is going to be about 70 miles from this battle. And David's like, what have I done? And so David is sent 70 miles away from this battle. And so what we have is two desperate people. David, who's tired of running, and so he runs to the Philistines. And we have Saul, who has no idea what to do. And so he consults with a spiritist. And what we find here, what we find in this story is that this is essential. Because this isn't for Saul. There's no repentance here. Saul's going to be judged. This isn't for David. This is a story for Israel to know 
that God is purifying, not purifying as in like cleaning it like we clean water. This is like purifying, like cutting out dead flesh. He's purifying the leadership of Israel by removing Saul. Saul, you will not listen, so you cannot be king. And God is preserving Israel's leadership by keeping David far from a battle he has no business being in. It's like this hidden, unseen hand of God in David's life. He's like, I want to be in this battle. I have a plan. And God's like, no, you've got to be far away. Your leadership can never be questioned because you can't have anything to do with the death of Saul. So what Israel finds here is God is actually purifying. He is cleansing the leadership of Israel and he's preserving godly leadership, raising up David. Remember, purifying like cutting it off. Saul, you are not fit to be king. David, you've got to be preserved by God's own hand to be the leader. And so this is a lesson for Israel. The Lord is actually active in your leadership. Israel, you guys are afraid and you don't know who to follow. The Lord is the one who's actually doing this. This didn't just happen. And so the the invitation to us is will we heed the warning of Saul's life and will we hope in God's hand that we see in David's life? Will we heed the warning of Saul's life and hope in God's hand who's active in David's? What I want to show you here briefly is three expectations when we don't know what to do. You see, David doesn't know what to do. Saul doesn't know what to do. And you and I often have no idea, God, which way do I go? What do I do? Where are you active? Three expectations when you don't know what to do. First, expect God's activity. Expect that God is actually doing something here. Chapter 28, verse 18. Samuel is the one telling David, David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. Saul needs to know, and Israel needs to know, Saul doesn't just die in battle. Israel needs to know Saul is dying because the Lord kills him in battle. They need to know that the Lord is actually at work in this matter. It's not just, well, maybe this or maybe that. They have to know that the Lord is at work. And that's the exact same thing we have to see in David's life. David doesn't just happen to become king. The Lord is actually active in raising up David. This is the fulfillment of Abigail's counsel that we looked at last week. In the sermon, Abigail, David's wife, says, no, David, don't take this into your own hands. The Lord is going to fight for you. Don't make the mistake of making this happen yourself. The Lord's going to be the one to do these things. And so the expectation we have to have at every point in our life is that the Lord is actually active. Last week, I mentioned this term functional atheism. It's this belief that we often live with, but we, we're, we're too good to, to actually name it. We're too good to say, well, God... God doesn't care about this and is not active in this area. No, functional atheism is this thing that we live with where we just, whether it's control or anger, whether it's fear, anxiety, it's these things where we go, there must not be a God or else he would do something about this. And so I'm on my own. I'm parenting on my own because God doesn't seem to be involved here. Here I am. I'm working on my own. I've got to provide for myself because God doesn't care or notice that I exist. We, we become functionally atheists when we just go, I am on my own, and if I don't do this, nobody's going to do this. We're all tempted with this. And the expectation we have to have from this story is that the Lord is actually here. The fancy word for that is imminent. That God is near to us. He's near to Belgium and Cedar Grove and he's Sheboygan and Oostburg and Random Lake and Fredonia and Port Washington. The Lord is here at work doing something. And so we have to have this expectation. 
that the Lord is actually here, not just there. That's the thing we see when we look at the book of Esther. Maybe you know, like, Esther is the one book of the Bible that doesn't say the word God at all. It's this, this, this strange book, and some people thought, well, maybe we should throw it out because it doesn't seem very, like, Christian to, like, leave God out of the Bible. Esther is this story of the unseen hand of God active in protecting and preserving his people by raising up a princess, making her the queen, and giving her the bravery and the access to save God's people. It's this unseen hand of God active in the history of Israel. And we've got to begin to see that in our own lives so that parenting can become transformed when we go, I'm not parenting on my own. I actually need to look for the activity of God in this situation. I'm not the mediator between the God who is out there and my child who is right here. Instead, I'm a participant with God in what he's doing in my child's heart and life. Whether your children are two years old or 18 or 35, this call is can we expect God's activity in our kids' lives? Can we expect God's activity? God, you're up to something. Can I discover and participate in that? This transforms evangelism from me going out on behalf of God and saying things that he's unwilling or unable to say for himself. Instead, I'm actually participating with him in what him reconciling the world to himself. Can we begin to expect that God is active in our neighborhoods? He didn't put us there on accident. He put us there because he's active and he wants somebody to participate with him. Second expectation, when we don't know what to do, is expect God to purify and preserve. Again, chapter 28, 17. The Lord has done what he has predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Saul's leadership has got to be cut off from these people. You see, Saul wants direction. But he's never listened to direction. Saul wants somebody to tell him, what well, just God, this is God says this is what you should do. But if God, Saul heard it, and when Saul heard it, he would never listen. He would never follow. There is no room for repentance because throughout Saul's life there was no repentance. It's so interesting that the beginning of Saul's leadership is he went to a prophet, and the prophet made him the honored guest at a feast. And the end of his kingship ends with him going and seeing a medium and eating her food. Like that, that's the picture of Saul's leadership as he starts out with a prophet eating a feast and he ends up in the house of a witch or a medium eating what she makes for him. That's the kind of king that he was. And so Saul's leadership, that kind of leadership has to be cut off. That is a warning to us to go, we must heed the fact that sin is a big deal. That's that's one of the the hearts behind parenting and discipline in parenting. It's not just manipulation. It's truth-telling. Kids, disobedience and rebellion always brings discipline and punishment. It always does. I just want to be a truth-teller to you. I want you to know that that sin sin is dangerous. We We must expect that God will purify and cut off, remove sin because he takes it so very seriously. And so we have to begin to heed that, but not just expect God punished, not just for God to discipline, not just for God to clean and purify, but also we see in David's story that God preserves. 
this unseen, David's like, I, here I am living for a year and four months, and I'm kind of tired of this, but hey, it's kind of a better gig for me to battle for this king. Let me go to war with him. Someday God will keep his promises. But no, the Lord puts his hand on David, removing him, preserving him, so that there can be no, there can be no accusation that his kingship and his leadership are illegitimate. And so not only do we expect that God will purify and cleanse and cut off sin, but God is also at work in our lives, preserving us for what he wants for us. And so right now, this might be a season of your life where you're like, God, why do you seem to hold me back from everything? Well, God, why, why are these things not working out? Because God preserves. Sometimes it's purification, but sometimes it's because he's just wanting us ready for something, in the right place for something. Psalm 40 and Psalm 51, like... T- like flesh this out as these psalms are confessions to say, God, you don't want sacrifice. You want somebody that's going to listen to you. And that's the expectation that we have to have is that God is purifying and preserving and wants people who don't just get everything right, but actually listen, that confess, that repent. And so the call is, well, we take sin very seriously. We take sin really, really seriously and say, there are dangerous roads out there that I don't want to go down, and that honestly my heart leads me to. Roads like pride, addiction to power, things that I can clutch and uh, impressing people on the outside. Will we take sin, sexual sin? Will we take the, the sin of our mouths seriously, knowing that God takes it very seriously? But can we also trust that the Lord is preserving? That you're not in the place that you're in on accident. That God's not holding you back because he doesn't love you or because he hasn't noticed. But could actually God be tucking you into a special place because he wants to do something? Because he wants to do something. The way I heard it yesterday is somebody said, what if God is actually looking at the you you will become a million years from now and all you can think of is what happens this week, this month, this year? What if God is working on this grand plan that he will enjoy forever with you? So will we trust that the Lord is both purifying and preserving? The final expectation is expect God to be working for you. Expect God to be working for you because, you see, this story is not about Saul and David. Saul, you should have learned your lesson. David, David, you need to learn this lesson. This is a story for Israel. Israel, God is actually working your leadership because he's doing something for you. Because he loves you so much, he's going to remove ungodly leadership and raise up godly leadership. This is a lesson for them as they go, we need a leader because we go in so many dangerous ways. We we get so lost in foolishness. And so, Israel, the Lord is actually working for you. Raising up leaders, clearing paths, doing these things for your good. And so the call to us is to know that the Lord is actually working for our good. He's actually working for us in every situation. And we go, what am I supposed to do? How do I get out of this? I'm in this great big mess, and I don't know if this is what I should be doing. This story tells us that God is actually working for us. It's this unseen hand, but will we heed those warnings? Will we hope that he's comforting? Will we begin to go, God, I'm going I'm to listen to your warnings, and I'm going to hope in your hand. But how can I know? How can I know God's not going to treat me like Saul? I think if we're honest, this has to be a sobering story. 
There is no repentance for Saul. Saul is judged. He's killed at the hands of the Philistines. His body is hung up to dry with his sons. How can we know God's not going to treat us like Saul? Because honestly, David's not the point. David's not the leader that Israel's one day going to get because one day David's kingship is going to be rejected and he's going to die. And so Israel's hope in this moment is, okay, God's removing Saul and he's going to raise up David. But no, David has to come down. And Solomon's one day going to fall and it's going to be king after king that falls. And so we're just left going, God, what are you doing? When can we have a leader that will bring us into the kingdom? God, when can we have this final good news? And finally, we find that Jesus, the very Son of God, is cut off like Saul. And then he's raised to become the eternal son of David so that you and I can know that God is always working for us, not because of us. Let me say that again. Jesus was cut off like Saul, but he was raised as David's eternal king so that you and I can know that God is always working for us. There is now no barrier to God's working in every situation in you and I's life. We can never be so far gone like Saul. It doesn't all depend on us. It depends on Jesus, the very Son of God. And you go, Joe, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure? Maybe you're a guest. Maybe you've been here for a long time, but you've been holding on to your own obedience. You've been trying as best you can to not be Saul. The good news of the Bible is that God made the world and he made it good. He made it so good. He looked out on it and looked at humans and he said, they are very good. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill this earth. You will be my little kings. I will be the great king. But the Bible says that all of us have rejected God as king to set up our own kingdoms. You and I are like Saul who will never listen and will live our lives eating feasts from witches and mediums rather than from his table. The Bible says that God will one day reject He will one day crush. He will one day judge all of his enemies. But instead of leaving us there, instead of leaving us there, he came and lived the life you and I should live, died the death that we should die, so that all who repent of sin, taking nothing but Jesus, they can get to be counted as part of the king's family with all of the rewards that Jesus has earned on our behalf. If you have questions about that, Come and grab me. Come and grab me during the singing. This is too important. That's why we exist as a church, is so that people would go from a kingdom of darkness that they make for themselves into the kingdom of light that he has made and invited us into. So the call of this passage is to heed the warning and hope in his hand. Imagine what that looks like when a community of people begin to live that out. People who live careful lives, taking seriously sin. Not people that make lists of rules and just never disobey, but people that say, God, we have disobeyed you in so many ways, in our hearts and in our lives, but we want to live careful lives in this world. God, God, we want to take sin seriously, and that means I'm going to confess of sin regularly. Imagine what that looks like on your blog for somebody, one family, to be heeding the warnings and taking seriously God's commands. But imagine more than that what it looks like for somebody to hope that he's actually at work in that place. What does it look like for you to hope that God is actually at work in your kids? Maybe hopeful parenting is a different way of looking at the world. He says, oh God, I'm actually participating with you, not doing things for you.